Please open your Bibles to Luke chapter 11. Luke chapter 11. We're going to start reading in verse 14. And I will read down through verse 28. You can follow along as I read. Luke chapter 11, starting at verse 14. And he was casting out a demon, and it was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke, and the crowds were amazed. But some of them said, He cast out demons by Beelzebul, the ruler of demons. Others, to test him, were demanding of him a sign from heaven. But he knew their thoughts. And he said to them, Any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a house divided against itself falls. If Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul. And if I by Beelzebul cast out demons, by whom do your sons cast them out? They will be your judges. But if I cast out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own house, his possessions are undisturbed. But when someone stronger than he attacks him and overpowers him, he takes away from him all his armor on which he had relied and distributes his plunder. He who is not with me is against me, and he does not gather with me scatters. When an unclean spirit goes out of a man, it passes through waterless places seeking rest and not finding any. It says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds it swept and put in order. Then it goes and takes along seven other spirits, even more evil than itself. They go in and live there, and the last state of that man becomes worse than the first. While Jesus was saying these things, one of the women in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast at which you nursed. And he said, On the contrary, blessed are those who hear the word of God and observe it. This, the events and This chapter mark a shift, a turning point in the ministry of Jesus Christ. The rejection of Jesus by the religious and political leaders is going to take up a, uh, is going to go up a notch. It's going to take on a new level of animosity and hatred. It reaches at this place a, the point of no return. Jesus will uh, point out that their assessment of him is Foolish and inconsistent. The catalyst for the opposition that we see in this passage is Jesus cast a demon out of a man. From this point on, the Jesus will spend more time with his disciples preparing them for their ministry after he leaves. The opposition will become more severe, even to the point where Jesus heals a, a man and the Pharisees excommunicate him because he gives Jesus the honor and the glory. Accusations about Jesus are being possessed by a demon continue to ratchet up. Eventually, the only thing left for them to do is seek for an opportunity to have Jesus killed, which obviously they'll do. Rather than using this miracle as an opportunity to praise God and give him glory, the Leaders of Israel use it as an opportunity to make a blasphemous claim that 
The power of Jesus comes from Satan. The wicked claims that these people make at this moment in time are illogical, they're inconsistent, they're inadequate, and they're ignorant. There are three reactions to the miracle, but it's the reaction of the leaders of Israel that have the greatest impact on the country as a whole and on Jesus specifically. The first reaction is amazement. It's there in verse 14. And when he was casting out a demon, and it was mute, when the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke and the crowds were amazed. The Greek text here reads in such a way to imply that both the demon and the man were mute, or the demon was mute, and when it uh, indwelt the man, it caused the man to be mute. At some point in time, this demon entered the man, and we don't know how long that was, how long he'd been possessed. Obviously, it was long enough for people to recognize that they knew this man, and they knew him to be a mute, unable to speak. So apparently, one day, the man was speaking just fine. There was no problems with it. And then the next day, he couldn't say anything. Any noise he makes were uh, in unintelligible grunts as he tried to communicate with people. However long he'd been in that condition, it was all about to come to an end that day. Muteness, by the way, isn't always, in the Bible is not always from demonic possession. There's another, uh, there's a few occasions where Jesus healed mute people. And one, he touched his, the man's tongue and he was healed. Others, just muteness is lumped in with being deaf or, or any kind of other illness. And it says that Jesus healed them. So we don't want you to get the idea that it's always because somebody was demon-possessed. But in this case, it is the muteness is caused by the demon. Knowing that the problem was demonic and not organic, Jesus is going to cast the demon out. And as soon as he does, the man begins to speak. And you can only imagine what he must have been saying. Certainly, probably praises to God were coming out of his mouth and praises to Jesus for what had just happened and acknowledging a miracle had just taken place. But as a result of this magnificent grace of God and the power exhibited in Jesus, the people are amazed. Your version may say they marveled or they wondered. It's important to recognize that amazement does not equal belief. Just because people were amazed doesn't mean they believed. You can be amazed when... A world-class magician like David Copperfield seemingly makes the Statue of Liberty disappear, but you don't actually believe that he made it disappear, unless, of course, you're silly. Many people were amazed at the miracles of Jesus. They're amazed at the stories of him walking on water, calming the storm, raising the dead, but they have no more belief in him as the Son of God than they believe in the tooth fairy. Many people are still amazed by the miracles of Jesus. But they've never came, come to Jesus by faith to receive his salvation. We should never confuse amazement with saving faith. Saving faith requires movement from amazement about Jesus to acknowledgement of who he is and what he said. Well, many were amazed. The majority of Israel's leaders had a very different response. They were not amazed at Jesus. 
their response was antagonism. Antagonism. You can look at verse 15. But some of them said he cast out demons by Beelzebul, the ruler of demons. While there was ooing and aahing of some, the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the chief priests, the others were sneering and snorting. This can't be. They were not impressed by the miracle. They were actually threatened by the miracle. They couldn't acknowledge the power of Jesus without acknowledging his words as well. And they didn't want to acknowledge his words. They wanted to do away with the words of Jesus, the things that he said, the things that he had said about them. So in order to do that, they had to do away with his power so they could discredit him somehow. They were saying in no uncertain terms that Jesus was a demon working for the prince of demons. Beelzebul, by the time the New Testament opens, had the common meaning of the phrase, the word was Lord of the Flies or Lord of the Dung Heap. And it was a common moniker for Satan. So it was very clear when they said he cast out demons by Beelzebul that everybody understood they were saying He is a demon working for Satan. Attributing the work of God to Satan is blasphemy of the worst kind. It would be tantamount to saying that Satan created the heavens and the earth. It would be tantamount to saying that it is Satan who frees you from slavery to sin. It would be in the same vein of doing that. It's attributing the glorious work of God to the devil. Giving him the credit. Well, the the religious leaders of Israel certainly weren't trying to give Satan credit for doing a good work. Rather, they were trying to relieve themselves of any responsibility to listen to Jesus. They couldn't stomach the possibility that Jesus spoke to them and about them and that he was divine. If what Jesus was saying was divine, then they were wrong. They couldn't allow themselves to believe that the commands of Jesus had any authority over them. They couldn't negate the undeniable power that they had seen. They had seen a a genuine issue of power of Jesus, but they couldn't attribute it to God because that meant Jesus came from God. So the only option they had was to attribute it to Satan. Many people still operate that same way today. They can't allow themselves to believe that there's someone greater than them. There's someone in the universe or someone who has authority over them. Somebody has the authority to command them or to condemn their behavior or tell them what is right and what is wrong. This is why the theory of evolution is so popular. It didn't start with Let's see how the universe came into being and Darwin developed the theory of evolution. It starts with, I don't want to answer to God. And if there's no God, then how did the world come into being? So they had to try to come up with some reason, some way to explain the origin of the universe absent God. And the best they could come up with was primordial ooze and a big bang. But that was all designed so you didn't have to answer to God. 
See, if all that's true, then there is no God. And there's no one to command you or to condemn you, to tell you right from wrong. The hearts of the scribes and Pharisees reflected the heart of Israel. And for the most part, the nation of Israel rejected Jesus. While there were small groups of people who did accept him and did confess him as Lord, the by and large, the greater population ignored him or rejected him. They were interested in the things that they saw. They liked the tricks, but they didn't believe that he was divine. They rejected his authority. They rejected his ability, his right to command them, to condemn their behavior. They wanted a God that would do what they wanted. They wanted to invent God after their own desires, their own images. They didn't want a God that would tell them what to do. They wanted a God that they got to tell what to do. Antagonism would ultimately be the prevailing response to Jesus. We live in a world that despises the idea that God has authority to command and to condemn. And even with many people that acknowledge the existence of God, they in their own, uh, their own lifestyle decide what that God dislikes and what that God dislikes. And oddly enough, it just happens to coincide with what they like and what they dislike. Many people want to be their own God. They want to believe that they're in control of their own life and their own destiny. We are told that, or they're told to honor God as the authority in their life. They resent it. They want to, they want to be the authority. They're antagonistic to the idea that God would require anything of them. For many people who even claim the existence of God, they think God is just some entity that is out there to give them what they want and help them when they need. Not tell them how to live. The third group responded to Jesus, not with amazement, not with antagonism, but with amusement. Verse 16, others to test him were demanding of him a sign from heaven. They wanted... To see more. To them, Jesus casting the demons, the demon out of this man and him being able to speak was nothing more than theater. They saw act one. Now they wanted to see act two. They want to see what's next. So they came to Jesus and they would test him. The word for test there is the same word that is used to speak of temptation when Satan tempted Jesus in the wilderness. So when Jesus, after fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, became hungry, the devil came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, make these stones bread. This crowd was doing the very same thing. If you are the Son of God, then do some more tricks. Do something really interesting. Maybe they were asking him to move the sun backward in the sky somehow. Or maybe they wanted to see if he could fly around the the area. Or something bizarre like that. Or... Paint the sky at will in different colors. If you're God, move a mountain. Do something spectacular. And it really wouldn't have mattered what Jesus did. Their response would have been the same. They still wouldn't have believed. 
If they didn't believe at the things that Jesus had already done, they wouldn't believe no matter what he had done. The night Jesus was betrayed, he was telling the disciples about going away and and Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it's enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does the works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me. Otherwise, believe because of the works themselves. Philip, if you're not going to believe what I said, at least believe what you've seen me do. The same was true when the disciples of John the Baptist would come to Jesus. John had been cast into the dungeon awaiting his death. John sends his disciples to Jesus to ask if he indeed is the Messiah. Is there another one that they're waiting for? And Jesus tells the disciples, go back and tell John what you've seen. The lame walk, the deaf hear, the blind see, the mute speak, the dead are raised, the poor have the gospel preached to them. In other words, he didn't send John with with a list of reasons to believe he's the Messiah. He said, go back and show him what you've observed. No one can do these things unless he's from God. Many people today want to be amused by Jesus. They don't want the authority. They just want the theater. They don't want the transforming work of God to change them. They just want God to help them. They want God to do tricks, perform miracles in their lives, entertain them. What they really want is Jesus on demand. They want to punch in their login and then select what it is they want Jesus to do and hit enter. They want to be able to say things like, well, I know Jesus, or I like Jesus, or I'm familiar with Jesus. They want to be able to drop Jesus' name if they ever happen to die and go to heaven. And God says, why should I let you in? And say, oh, Jesus is my friend. Be it amazement, antagonism, or amusement, the crowd had their responses to the miracles that Jesus performed. And though the responses are different, they all came from the same unconverted hearts. Unbelieving hearts. And Jesus will not overlook their foolishness of their reaction and let them walk away thinking that their reactions to Jesus are acceptable. That they can... They can just live however they want and think about him however they want to think and it has no consequences. So Jesus responds. There's five responses that Jesus gives. In it, he's going to explain that if you're going to reject Jesus, you've got to check your brain at the door. Because it doesn't make any sense. And it exposes the foolishness of their unbelief. The first Reason, the first response of Jesus is they are illogical in their application. They are illogical in their application. Verse 17. But he knew their thoughts and said to them, any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste and a house divided against itself falls. Jesus knew exactly what they were thinking. He knew what was in their heart. He knew what was in their Mind. He could read people, or not because he was just good at human interactions, but because he was omniscient, so he knew exactly what they were thinking, and he was never wrong. 
And he gives them this undeniable axiom, this statement, this proverbial statement. A kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a house divided against itself falls. That second phrase, a house divided against itself falls, has been used multiple times since Jesus used it. Abraham Lincoln used it in a speech to the United States Senate in 1858. And he said, a house divided against itself cannot stand. I believe this government cannot endure permanently half slave and half free. Lincoln used it to speak of the crippling effects of half the nation holding on to slavery and half of them rejecting slavery. Jesus uses it to speak of the ridiculous assumption that Satan would deputize Jesus to go wreak havoc on his own kingdom. It would make no sense. He goes on in verse 18, if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say, I cast out demons by Beelzebub. He's saying, this, there's no logic here, gentlemen. He's saying, if I were to, if, if I worked for Satan, why would he have me go out and destroy his own kingdom? That makes no sense. That would, that would be like a quarterback tossing the football to his running back who then runs towards the wrong goal. And while the rest of the team is running to go tackle their own teammate, the quarterback's going, go, go, go! It makes no sense. That's just stupid. There's no logic here. To ignore the divine work of Jesus in the exorcism and attribute it to Satan is an illogical statement. It's a failure in logic. To deny the existence of God and His power is the same. It's a failure of logic. We are told that creation itself is this Grand proof of the existence of God. Proves his wisdom, his power, and his glory. To attribute all this to random chance is actually a type of blasphemy. To say that all this just happened by some unknown force is to deny the power of God and is thus to blaspheme him. Not only are they illogical in their application, secondly, they're inconsistent in their assessment. They're inconsistent in their assessment. Look at verse 19. And if I, by Beelzebul, cast out demons, by whom do your sons cast them out? So they will be your judges. There were other people casting out demons in this point, not just Jesus. Uh, According to Acts 19, I know that's after the resurrection, there were people trying to cast out demons that were not among the disciples. Jesus had previously given the disciples the ability to cast out demons on their short-term missions trip. So Jesus asks a legitimate question. If, I, if I'm doing it by Beelzebul, then who, who's behind your, your sons or the other Jews that are casting out demons? You can't have it both ways. You can't, you can't say that they're doing it from the power of God, but I'm doing it from the power of Satan. Verse 20 But if I cast out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. If this is, if I'm doing this by the power of God, then, then you're missing the kingdom. You're missing the offer of the kingdom. You're missing the representative of the kingdom. This is God's hand at work. And that phrase, the finger of God, would have brought to mind the, the, the plagues on Egypt. 
when Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh initially to say, let my God says, let my people go. And Pharaoh wouldn't do it. The first curse, the first plague was turn the Nile into blood. So Pharaoh called all the magicians in Egypt and they got together and they racked their brain and they figured out a way to give the illusion that the Nile turned to blood and they were able to duplicate it. So they dismissed the plague, the first plague as, as an illusion. So the second plague came and it was frogs on the land. And the magicians got together and they figured out a way to attract frogs and it looked like uh, they could duplicate the plague. So they showed Moses and Aaron, you want frogs, we'll give you more frogs. That's, that was brilliant. But they were able to duplicate it, so they dismissed it as a trick. And the third plague came and it was gnats flying everywhere, getting in your eyes, your ears, buzzing around, getting in your mouth, everywhere. The magicians got together and they couldn't figure out how to create more gnats. And they said in Exodus 8, 19, the magician said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. And from that point on, they couldn't duplicate any of the plagues. This is God at work. So Jesus is saying, if you, if, 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 I am casting out demons by the power of God and you have to admit that that's what's going on because you have a problem otherwise. Then you also have to admit this is the finger of God at work among you. The kingdom is here. Jesus pushes them to acknowledge that choosing to ignore the miracle is to ignore the presence of God in their midst. Many people today want to pick and choose what they believe about God. And it's often arbitrary and inconsistent, such as it is here. The third response is they are inadequate in their analysis. They are inadequate in their analysis. Verse 21. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own house, his possessions are undisturbed. Jesus gives another parable-like story of a strong man and a stronger man. The strong man comes and he fortifies his house and he puts bars on the on the windows and locks on the doors and he's got his weapons and he's ready and he's watching. And nobody comes and disturbs his house because he's prepared for that. But verse 22, when a strong someone stronger than him attacks him and overpowers him, he takes away from him all his armor on which he had relied and distributes his plunder. It's okay to... To have this idea that you're in control and you're, you're guarding your stuff, but if somebody stronger than you comes, they got bigger guns, they got bigger weapons, you're out of luck. You know, you can take a, take a 15 year old boy and he can arm wrestle all the kids in junior church. He beats them all. Yeah, no problem. And then you get a bodybuilder to come over to the 15 year old boy and he breaks the kid's arm. This is the story. This is the picture. Satan is the strong man. Yes, he's very powerful. But Jesus is the stronger man. He's more powerful. That's why he's able to cast out the demons. That's why he's able to undermine the a kingdom of Satan. When the Jesus cast the mute demon out of the man, it was nothing short of a full-on assault of Satan's kingdom. 
It was not just some minor thing. It was destroying the strong man. Listen, it's easy to look at the condition of our world and all the wickedness that seemingly prevails, that destroys lives and think that God is ineffective, that evil is winning. But brothers and sisters, our God is stronger than the devil. And he's allowing Satan to do what he's doing for a time. And I can't tell you exactly why, except that it will ultimately lead to his glory. And God is using it to bring people to himself and to refine his chosen people and preparing the judgment on his enemies. And in his time, the stronger man's going to come. And he's going to take over. It will be a glorious day. But to look at the state of our world and say God must not exist or God is not interested because of what's happening is a foolish thing to say. The more that we look at this world, the more that we long to be with the Lord. The fourth response, they're ignorant of their associations. They're ignorant of their associations. Verse 23, he who is not with me is against me, and he does not gather with me scatters. Again, Jesus forces the people to make a conscious choice. Whose side are you going to be on? You can be on God's side or Satan's side. You can't, you can't be in the middle. There's no neutral ground. One of the great deceptions of the devil to the human mind is they can be neutral when it comes to the things of God. As long as they don't curse God, then they're okay. They, some people believe that, that they can be neutral. I can, uh, you can believe in God and that's fine and I don't and that's fine and in the end it'll be okay because I didn't curse God and, and I was sincere or whatever. As long as I don't fight against God, he'll be happy with me. Jesus leaves no room for neutrality here. Everyone is on a side. He said you're on my side or you're against me. You're on God's side or you're on the devil's side. Well, I don't worship Satan. It doesn't matter. If you don't belong to God, you already belong to Satan. You don't make the choice to belong to Satan. That choice happened at birth. Consider all that Jesus did and consider all that Jesus said. Consider all the miracles that he performed. Consider all the statements that Jesus said. His works and his words were so amazing that to claim neutrality is absurd. To take all that Jesus is and all that Jesus did and all that Jesus said and say, I Choose not to believe is absurd. It is to be against him. All a claim of neutrality is actually a claim of unbelief. 
You imagine a person's driving down the road. They see a sign that says, bridge out ahead, stop. They keep driving, and then there's another sign. It's a little larger. It says the same thing. And they keep driving, and then there's another sign that's even larger, with larger font on it. Stop now! They say, I believe the signs. But they keep driving at 50 miles an hour. Well, their actions show they don't really believe the signs. Otherwise, they would stop. At best, he didn't really believe the signs. At worst, he's a fool. The same is true of anybody who doesn't receive Christ. At best, they don't believe that he's the Messiah. At worst, they're a fool. Because the fool has said in his heart, there's no God. Jesus calls all men to repentance. And he's given sign after sign to prove who he is and to prove his authority. Yet the multitudes who claim to believe him prove by their refusal and their refusal to turn that they really don't believe him. Their actions are in fact a declaration of unbelief. You and everybody that you know is on one side or the other either for Christ or against Christ. The fifth response, they're incomplete in their alterations. They're incomplete in their alterations. Look at verse 24. When an unclean spirit goes out of a man, it passes through waterless places, seeking rest. And not finding any, it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds it swept and put in order. Then it goes and takes along seven other spirits more evil than itself. And they go in and live there. And the last state of that man becomes worse than the first. This speaks of incomplete reform. Incomplete reform. This This is a person who tries to live the Christian life without ever coming to saving faith. They may go to church. They may read a Bible. They may go to Bible studies. They try to adopt Christianese. They try to look like a Christian, sound like a Christian, act like a Christian. They adopt Christian principles in their lives, but it ultimately ends in failure, usually catastrophic failure, because they were never really saved. They never really came to saving faith. The the transformation was incomplete. They put off the old, but they never put on the new. It's a failure a lot of Christians make today where they try to put off the old, but they never put on the new. They never replace it with something else. So the story is this person put off the old, but they never put off the new. Imagine you own a home. It's a rental, but nobody's living in it. And you don't rarely go buy it. And you rarely pay any attention to it. And one day you drive by and you find out there's a homeless guy squatting in your house. He's living there. And he's trashed it. The windows are broken. The, the, there's trash all over the inside. It smells. And with some effort, you chase this guy out of your house. And you go in and you clean up all the trash. You get a dumpster. You fill it up. You replace all the flooring. You paint the walls. You replace the windows. You put new locks on it. You lock it up. And you go home. And you forget about the house. 
Six months later, you drive by it again, and now the same guy's back with seven of his friends. Now there's eight guys living in the house. This is the story Jesus is saying. You're going to rid your life of these the sinful things of the world, but you don't replace it with the Spirit of God indwell you, then you're just setting yourself up for Satan to come back and wreak havoc in your life. The danger of reform without regeneration. The Holy Spirit doesn't dwell in you. You can try all you want to clean up your life. It will make no difference. This is how cults thrive on people who have gone to church but never were saved. They have a religious bent in their life, but they never knew Christ. So a cult comes in and offers them something, and they take it. Being religious is not the answer. Being redeemed is the answer. There were three reactions to Jesus and five responses from Jesus, but there's only one road to Jesus. Verse 27 28. While he was saying these things, one of the women in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast at which you nursed. But he said, On the contrary, blessed are those who hear the word of God and observe it. Jesus is not disagreeing with the woman. She's honoring his mother, Mary, which is a fulfillment of prophecy. Mary herself said in what we call the Magnificat, In Luke chapter 1, verses 46 and following, My soul exalts the Lord. My spirit has rejoiced in God, my Savior, for he has had regard for the humble state of his bondservant. For behold, from this time on, all generations will count me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me, and holy is his name. So this woman's actually fulfilling prophecy here by calling her blessed. So Jesus is not saying, you don't know my mother. You didn't grow up with her. He's not saying that she's not special. What he's saying is there's something even more important than that. She is special not because there was something special about her body. Not special because there was something special about her personality. She was special because she heard the word of God and she submitted to it and applied it to her life. So Jesus is saying, listen, you want to, you want, the reason she is blessed is not because she gave birth to the Messiah, but because she listened to God and obeyed him. And that's what he says here. Blessed are those who hear the word of God and observe it. And that's true of every person you know. It's true of you. Jesus puts the highest blessings on those who listen to God and obey Him. And that's a blessing that's applicable or reachable by all of us. There was only going to be one mother of Jesus. That blessing was for her and no one else is going to achieve that. Jesus says, oh, there's a higher blessing than that. And every one of you can reach that one. And that higher blessing is to listen to God and obey Him. Jesus cut through all the objections. And He left people without excuse. After all that they had seen and heard, 
to reject Jesus is an utter act of foolishness. The blessing is listening to what he said and applying his words to your life. And folks, it's no different today. It's the height of foolishness and blasphemy to hear all that Jesus says and observe what he he does and then ignore him. To say that his words mean nothing. That his works are just entertainment. The blessing comes with listening to his word and, and following, obeying it. And all that it says. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you made yourself known to us. Father, it is an amazing thing that you would disclose yourself to men through your Son, Jesus Christ. And Father, we are so grateful that you did. Eternally grateful that you did. But Father, may we take your word seriously. May we look at it, when we read it, when we hear it, when we study it, not be quick to dismiss what it says, but Father, be quick to see how it must apply to our life. How we must listen and obey. That Father, you might be glorified and we might be blessed. Father, almost all of us know someone who claims to know you, claims to believe in you, but doesn't worship you, doesn't follow you, has in fact rejected you. Father, may we be bold in sharing with people that they're either for Christ or against him. And Father, if there's anyone here and you know every heart, if there are those who are currently against you here, Father, would you please draw them to saving faith today? that you may be glorified. Father, change hearts, change lives. For your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.